the Farm Advisory Service podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government. Hello and welcome to this Farm Advisory Service Livestock Podcast. This podcast is designed to give producers up-to-date information on all things relating to livestock. It's been funded jointly through the Farm Advisory Service Animal Welfare Programme and also the Veterinary Advisory Service. So a big thanks to Scottish Government for their support. Today's podcast focuses on dairy. I'm joined today by friends and colleagues Colin Mason and Lorna McPherson. Colin is is the Vet Centre Manager uh, for SRUC Vet Services in Dumfries and Lorna is a dairy consultant with SEC Livestock Team. So good morning to you both. Good morning. Good morning. So Colin, we're heading into the spring. What what are you seeing coming in or what are you what are you concerned about looking forward from a veterinary perspective? Yeah, thanks very much, Robert. One of the things, yeah, we're we're thinking about as we record this podcast is what's likely to come our way in April. Uh, hopefully, as uh, some milking cows go out to grass, um, and also thinking about young stock starting to go out, and and what the challenges might be. So, uh, if we focus on the young stock first of all, then we need to think about how we manage parasite disease, uh, what the challenges are uh, around um, possible post-turnout scours, and, and thinking towards planning and preventing parasite challenges for the grazing season and setting that up right. And also, if we're thinking about the, the milking cow side of things around turnout, is, is, is transitioning the turnout to grass, trying to minimize the impacts of digestive upsets, and think about you know what might happen if we get some challenging weather conditions and some changeable weather conditions through April and into May. Yeah, and Dumfries and Galloway, I'm sitting in Ayrshire just now, I assume you'll be similar. Are there many? Are there still as many cattle going out or are, are more and more dairy, dairy herds housed all year round? Yeah, and, and certainly um, there, are, there are fewer cows outside than there used to be. It, it's polarised into... You know, some herds that are specialist grazing herds and spring calving herds where you know they're already out and, and they're, they're trying to maximize their use of grass um, uh, on the one and then there's a, a lot of herds where either cows don't go out at all or, or the high yielding cattle are are inside and will remain inside and I guess the nutritional challenges for those is going to be you know how we eke out forage stocks um, until we get into um, summer silage season. Uh, and, and how we try and keep the diets as consistent as possible for these cows uh, if we're facing some pressures with feed supply. Yeah, and Lorna, on on dairies across the country, how are we looking from a, a forage, persp- forage perspective? Um, I think it varies. It depends where you go in uh, the country, but there are certainly reports of people just going to be just slightly short of silage now. You know, it's going to be a long time until we're ready to be feeding out this year's first cut. So there's definitely reports of uh, some people being a wee bit short on silage. Uh, but as I say, it varies where you go in the country. Um, but but there are things that you can do if you're short of silage, um, maybe just relying a bit more heavily on straw or uh, byproducts, so sort of uh, wet distillery products such as draft or super grains or, or that kind of thing. So there is options available there. Um, unfortunately, it is going to cost, um, and, and certainly relying a bit more on a straw on the diet is going to be a more expensive route to go down. It will need extra um, both protein and energy supplementation uh, to maintain uh, milk output. But you know, there's also good opportunity to increase straw usage in dry cows and, and young stock rations as well uh, before they go out to grass. Just yeah. coming in on the on the straw thing, um, I always feel one of the challenges at this time of year, and straw stocks are particularly tight across the UK this year um, because of the drier conditions last growing season. So um, with with the tightness of straw supply and the cost of straw as well right now, is is making sure that the quality is right. So there's risks potentially for for bedding for dry cows and calving cows is around mastitis risk um i suspect also you know potentially if there's quite a bit of fungal contamination and 
dust, etc., uh, would be around the risks of you know fungal abortion as well. So things to think about there, and also how that then translates out to if if we're feeding straw in transition cow rations to make sure that it is the right quality uh, is not going to affect intakes and not potentially going to lead to a, a, a spike in uh, any digestive upsets, reduced intakes, transition cow disease, that sort of thing. So there are potential challenges with, with straw supply over the next few months and, and also straw quality. On that one, probably, you know, we've been a wee bit set in our ways, you know, some people will work with barley straw and some folk will work with wheat straw. And when it comes to this stage, you kind of have to take what you're offered. Is there any anything to consider if you're changing the type of straw you're moving to, wheat, barley, oats? Is there anything to think about there, Lorna? The only thing I would say is probably in terms of getting the straw chopped sufficiently enough to ensure good intakes, wheat straw would be the best. Um, it tends to you know chop a lot better, whereas barley straw can be often quite quite soft and you know it doesn't chop so well. So ideally I suppose for dry cows we're, we're looking for the sort of the chop length to be um, no longer than five centimeters because um, as Colin said you know once um, you know if intakes aren't that great if the cows are sorting the mix if they're leaving out some of this, the longer chop material uh, we don't get as much dry matter intake we don't get as much you know room and fill which we're trying to maximize during the dry period um, and it's quite often when you've got issues with sorting and not chopping the straw very well, that's often when you can get spikes and things like milk fevers or, or retain cleansings. So I think, yeah, that is really important. And like you say, you just maybe have to take what you can get, but processing of the straw is going to be really important. Um, the other thing as well, just if you are using more straw in rations, just you know, think about what the dry matter of the mix is like. If it is too dry, then again, intakes might suffer. Uh, and so it, it is a good idea just to add some water to the mix, just to dampen it down and just help encourage intakes as well. Yeah. One of the one of the challenges that, that vet practitioners always face with transition cow disease or, or particular um, uh, twisted stomachs, left displaced albumasums, uh, they tend to come in runs in dairy herds uh, in that they'll sail along fine for a period of time with, with very little in the way of problems, and then they'll get a run of uh, LDAs, for example. Um, and it's always trying to just think what's caused it, what's caused it in terms of diet change, change in transition cow management, uh, usually reduction in intakes somewhere. So all these factors we're talking about in terms of straw quality, silage quality, trying to keep the ration consistent where possible are, are really important there. And also it feeds out as well into cows that are going out to grass, um, you know, just depending on grass supply, um, weather, um, and, and changes to that that grass availability, just to make sure that we're trying to keep things as consistent as possible and avoid these these runs of LDAs. Uh, in modern dairying, it's, it's probably impossible to avoid LDAs completely, um, but if we're starting to get a run of them, it's always just thinking, well, what's triggered this? Um, what changes have triggered this diet-wise and you know how, how can we try and smooth that out and manage that as best as possible yeah one of the options i suppose if we're looking at spinning out forages is to reduce demand it's always the kind of best place to start um we've got obviously various groups on a dairy farm young stock generally go to grass dry cows and dairy cows and, and milk cows tend to stay in certainly on the high yielding uh, end of things is there options to, you know, some folk might be looking to, to go back to grazing dry, dry cows again. Is that a worthwhile exercise? Is it something that can be done successfully or is it something that we should be very wary of doing? There'll be people that choose to put their far off dry cows out to grass um, to allow them to have a period of rest at grass, which, you know, is, is, is good for welfare reasons potentially. But there are challenges that come with it. Um, so, yes, you can get them out, but... Uh, again, it's managing intakes to make sure that they don't get too fat um, and ensuring that they're not getting uh, a, you know, a good supply of lush spring grass that's going to cause them to gain weight. Uh, the second one is around either hot weather or adverse weather. Um, in the, If you get a period of adverse weather, then they can end up in a real muddy mess out at grass, which can 
dramatically increased mastitis risk and around that the times to really be worried about will be immediately post dry off it the, the dry period from a mastitis point of view it's always the start of the period uh, as the the other goes into the dry state and the end of the dry period as they they move back to, to producing milk again that causes the problems so poor environmental conditions can lead to real issues there um, I suppose if we get a spell of really hot weather as well it's it's the issues uh, around cows looking for shade uh, flies and, and certain areas of, of dry cow fields that become quite heavily contaminated um, and we might be thinking later on into the spring or summer for that to occur yeah, certainly having dry cows at RAS, I mean, there is quite a few risks associated with that. And, and Colin highlighted one of the main ones, certainly for the cows that have been newly dried off. It's just making sure that they don't gain condition and have too much access to high quality grass, which is going to be greatly oversupplying their energy needs at that time. And then the risk for cows closer to calving, if they're still at grass, is the fact that grass can often be high in calcium and it also might be high in potassium. Uh, and a combination of these two factors can affect magnesium absorption in the cow. And magnesium is really important um, in sort of control of milk fever. So, again, with close up dry cows at grass, that can certainly increase the risk of milk fever. So if that is an issue, then the best thing you can do is just take your close up cows, have them housed inside for three weeks before calving on a properly controlled ration that's got a good sort of mineral strategy for milk fever prevention. The other important thing as well, if you're far off cows are at grass, again, it's all down to condition. What is the length of their dry period? So the longer they're out, the more likely it is that they, they could potentially gain weight. So it's making sure that they're really heavily stocked or trying to keep them on as bare a paddock as possible, but still have access to lower quality forage, such as straw or hay, just so that they can maintain their rumen fill. If we're talking milk fever, just as, as targets, um, milk fever rates for any dairy herd should really be below 5%. And actually with really good uh, transition cow management and nutrition, it's it's virtually possible to, uh, to, to eradicate milk fever and have hardly any cases at all. Uh, I wouldn't hesitate to say you'll get zero cases, but, but make them very, very rare. So those are the sort of targets that we need to be, be aiming for. Um, and certainly that's quite hard to do if you've got your close-up dry cows, your transition cows out at grass. It's very, very hard to manage that situation. So for, for my money, they're better inside, and, and a lot of dairy farmers will, will be doing that. And, and again, it's always useful, I think, with any of these transition cow diseases is to think, well, what's what's the rate you're getting? Uh, you know, look at the last six months, how many milk fevers have you had? Um, is that okay? Could it be better? Um, and, and just bear in mind, yeah, below 5% is a perfectly achievable target. And um, it, it, it is actually not an unreasonable thing to do to think about stopping milk fever altogether, just about. Yeah. And none of us have a crystal ball. We can't predict the future, but it does look as if the, the dairy trade, you know, GDT auctions have been positive. Things are looking fairly good for the dairy job. And although it might be appear to be slightly more expensive to house, house dry cows and uh, and manage them in, in the house, they're well worth investing in at the moment. They are the most important group and they're one that um, if we get it right at that stage, the rest of it should follow the rest of the year. Um, uh, absolutely. And, and milk fever, you can look at it and say, well, actually, a straightforward case of milk fever is a relatively easy thing to treat. Uh, in that they, you know, they do respond quickly and well to calcium supplementation. However, from a cow's perspective, it's the worst conceivable start to a lactation, in that you know their their risk of injury goes up, their risk of mastitis goes up, their risk of uh, a retained cleansing or metritis goes up, um, their risk of them developing an LDA goes up. You know, it's one of these real sort of um, what's the word it's one of these diseases that can just lead on to so many other things i suppose that's the best way of describing it uh it, it's a terrible start to a lactation for a cow and this podcast is funded through the scottish government farm advisory service for animal welfare and really as far as a welfare 
issue goes, it's, it, as you say, it's a terrible start. It's a terrible position for that cow to be in to start with. Just the other thing to bear in mind as well, even if you're just seeing one or two clinical cases of milk fever, that might just be the tip of the iceberg. And we know that for maybe one clinical case, there could be three or four subclinical cases. So you might not necessarily see obvious signs of milk fever, but if there's subclinical issues there, that has still been proven to go on to affect milking performance and you know how quickly that cow gets back in calf as well. So some of the other risks that follow on from a, a case of milk fever, those risks are maybe still there for the subclinical cases that you don't see as well. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what I was going to say in that what we find uh, from a vet investigation point of view quite interestingly is it's not just to focus on the downer cow but you know the definition of milk fever is a cow that is also you know looking like she might be uh, a little bit wobbly and you know responding to calcium supplementation and actually blood sampling cows around calving uh, and looking at their calcium levels the calcium levels should be above two uh, and it's quite interesting the number of cows that have this subclinical milk fever they're not off their legs uh, they're not down, but they do have a, a, a borderline blood calcium level. Uh, and these cows, they won't, uh, um, well, they're more likely to hold on to the cleansing, for example. Uh, they're more likely to get metritis or endometritis post-carving. So there are risks attached to that, even though on the face of it, clinically, they're not actually going down and off their legs. So definitely want to look out for and, and definitely want to consider with your vet is, is is doing some blood sampling of cows within 24, 48 hours of calving just to check their calcium levels. And that situation won't just be the case for milk fever. That will cover most of the diseases you deal with, won't it, Colin? There's, there's the clinical cases, there's the, the disaster cases that you see, and then there's all there's all the peers that are held back by the same constraints by pneumonias or scours or anything else. Absolutely. You know, the, the, the overt clinical case or, you know, the, the dead animal for whatever reason is always the tip of the iceberg. And, and you've got to think, well, what, what is lying underneath the waterline with these conditions and what are we missing? And, and very often it's the, the subclinical effects that are really quite costly when they all add together in terms of, of, of the net effect that that has on, on overall herd health and overall profitability, productivity. Yep. Um, excellent. So last year, uh, Colin, we saw a fair bit of phosphorus deficiency in some herds, um, particularly those extensive grazers or the extreme grazing herds. Should we be concerned this year? Is, is, was that a one-off or should we be concerned about that as well? Well, I guess we don't know right now. Recording this in, in mid-March, uh, what we saw last year occurred in April uh, and it was a particularly dry spell. Uh, and actually, there were spells where it was quite cold at night as well and grass growth was really slow for a period uh, in mid-late April last year. Um, and... Phosphorus uptake by the plant was inhibited by that weather. And what we saw, and it was it was quite interesting, it was in um, spring calving grazing herds almost exclusively. Um, and they demonstrated this phenomenon of pica, whereby they would be manically licking at things, they'd be eating stones uh, or chewing at stones. That Some of them were sort of tearing up astroturf cow tracks, uh, almost sort of crazy manic behavior um, and there's a few theories as to why this might occur, um, of which probably the most evidence lies behind them being phosphorus deficient. And as I say, there's a link there to last year and how the grass was growing, particularly last year. Um, salt deficiency has also been mentioned as a possible cause, as has, you know, it, it almost being a sort of a learned behavioral trait as well. But I think for me, phosphorus is, is most likely where it's at. Um, whether we'll see that again this year, um, it's hard to know. It'll depend on the weather conditions. It will depend on rainfall and it will depend on grass growing, how even that is. Um, but it's certainly something to be aware of and to look out for. And it seems to be particularly with the the extreme grazing herds, if you like, that are, are really you know, going for the spring calving New Zealand system. Um, we didn't really see it at all in house dairy cows or, or, or cows that were getting a lot of indoor supplementary feeding. Yeah, so time will tell. 
time will tell but certainly be aware of it and the the, the clinical signs are pretty characteristic uh, in that you know if you're the person that's bringing these cows up from the field um and, and just watching them walk um seeing their behavior you'll notice it, it, it it's not going to be subtle uh, and it won't affect every cow either it, it seems to affect individuals within the group um, um but it's certainly something to be aware of um who knows what this spring is going to bring yet and, and is it something that you fix in the ration or is it something you fix in the cow well it's something you you can try and you, you can try and prevent that in the ration um obviously it's through through good mineral supplementation um, one of the problems i suppose with cows out at grass is that if you're providing free access powdered minerals or buckets you don't always know that they're taking the right amount but um if it is something that you're concerned about and you've got an extensive sort of grazing herd uh, with, with very little, with no buffer feed or, or, or much concentrates being provided, but there is parlor cake, then it's maybe just worth checking with your feed supplier that there's added phosphorus in the cake because some feed suppliers will not add phosphorus to dairy cake as standard. So that's maybe one of the routes that, uh, that you could go down. And the other thing as well, obviously the, the symptoms in the cows are, are pretty obvious as Colin described, but when you look at the grass, it might just not be growing very well. But the problem with this phosphorus deficiency is that the grass can still appear very healthy looking in a really nice dark green colour. So it's not something that's easy to spot before you start to see um, the, the obvious clinical signs in the cows. But like we say, we don't know what we're going to get this year with, with the weather conditions. It was quite unique conditions, I think, that, that caused it last year. The other thing just to mention is what we found last year and what some herds found is is that there wasn't an immediate response to supplementation. Uh, it, it took a week or two sometimes after providing additional phosphorus for the problem to resolve. So ju just bear that one in mind in that it's not like clicking, that didn't seem to be at least like, you know, clicking a switch on and off in terms of stopping it. Mm -hmm. Certainly worth, if you do see it, see the peak of thing happening it's worth certainly having a discussion with vet nutritionist and, and getting folk on board to um Absolutely. to try and resolve it um lorna moving on to we've spoken about dairy cows at, at length obviously there's there's young stock as well and, and young stock a uh, management hopefully so mid-march we're hoping soon we'll start to see young stock back out in fields and, and grazing um what should we be looking at? What should we be thinking about before we turn a young stock out to grass? Um, for turning young stock out to grass, it's, it's really just thinking about what age are the, the young stock that you're turning out. I mean, ideally, dairy calves perform best on straw and concentrate up to at least six months of age. And if they are going to grass younger than that, then there maybe is a risk that certainly calves three to four months of age, their rumens are maybe still not quite fully developed or able to handle uh, such a significant change going from a straw concentrate based diet onto a diet of very lush, exceptionally high protein spring grass. So there can certainly be risks for digestive upsets there. Um, I suppose the other thing you want to think about as well is how are your heifers going to perform at grass? Are you going to get the growth on them? Because we know that the target is to try and calf heifers down at 22 to 24 months of age and it can certainly be a risk in their first year if they're going out to grass um, you know it's all weather dependent depends on the availability of the grass and the grass quality as well but are you going to be able to get your heifers consistently achieving you know 0.8 kilos growth a day um, and I would say certainly for younger heifers going out to grass it would still be good practice to supplement them with one to two kilos of concentrate throughout the summer and Certainly, as the summer progresses, maybe thinking about you know into July or even like into August time, just depending on the grass quality and what's available, we want to keep these growth rates grow going in young heifers. So I think that's a thing to be really mindful of. Um, and again, just coming back to really young heifers at grass, and you know it's such a severe change going from um, you know their rear ration onto a grass ration, and the rumen bugs can easily take a good two weeks just to adapt to that change and you know you do tend to often hear reports of the summer scour syndrome in young calves just partly down to that shock to the system going from 
you know, their, their reader ration on, on, onto fresh grass. Um, Colin, from a veterinary perspective, you might want to say a wee bit more about that summer scarus syndrome. Yeah, so we will see every year post turnout scours. Um, and in young stock, I, I guess the first thing to think about is this infectious disease or is this nutritional? So from an infectious disease point of view, and perhaps the main things that we're thinking about will be parasite disease. Uh, and from those, uh, coccidiosis would be one of the first things to think about in cattle that are immediately turned out. Uh, there's one particular type of coccidia that affects cattle, um, which has actually got what we call quite a short pre-patent period. So there's actually quite a small lag time between them going out, picking up the parasite uh, and then actually developing a scour. So it can be as short as you know, 10 days to a fortnight uh, after them going out, developing quite a, a severe scour with a, a type of coccidia called Imeria alabamensis. And we do see that in some herds um, and it will be, yeah, young, first grazing young stock going out, um, presenting with a, a severe scour, usually 10 days to three weeks post turnout. Um, so coccidiosis will be the, the first thing to, to be thinking about and, and to rule out and yeah, a little bit with the history will that will be is as well the grazing land that was was grazed by young stock last year um is it, it you know what's the what's the risk from the pasture uh, and also potentially the you know the risk around feeding areas um, for, for concentrate feeding um in in those fields as well so uh, i guess the main message is, is that if we're seeing post turnout scours um is is get them checked and get them checked quickly in terms of getting some fecal samples, it's really easy to make these coccidia diagnoses um, and, you know, make a quick diagnosis and then treat. So that would be the first thing. Um, the second thing is, as Lorna mentioned, is, is the sort of post-turnout nutritional scours and, you know, our investigation strategy with those, you know, the first thing is, is we want to rule out parasite disease. Um, if we're confident that it's not that, then we maybe think more towards nutrition and is this just, you know, a room and shock uh, as they move off a house diet onto a, a, a lush grazing diet. Uh, and, and we do see that and we'll see, see calves lose dramatic amounts of weight, um, particularly the younger calves, if they're turned out at, you know, around about up to six months old, something like that. They can scour really badly. They can lose dramatic amounts of weight. And it is just a, a, a sort of room and shock type syndrome, we think, where it, it fails to adapt to the change in diet. And it's quite a sudden change in diet. So uh, I, I guess best advice would be to, you know, as Lorna says, still provide some concentrate and maybe not put them out just to start off with onto the lushest of pastures um, and to try and stagger that. That, that sort of diet train transition as as much as possible to just get them used to it. Um, so that's maybe things to think about there. Also, it's just the age at, at first turnout. Uh, obviously, you know they're not full ruminants till you're at least four months of age. So it's at what stage is their rumen development anyway, uh, and you know how they then can go on to to develop that that rumen further. I think perhaps also is to to think about what they're um, what their diet is pre-turnout. Um, is it worthwhile making sure that they're adapted onto at least a, a grass silage-based system before they go out um, uh, so that they're, that they're slightly more adapted to, to what they might go on to as they, as they get turned out? And of course, one of the challenges that any, any farmer will have is, is, is that if you try to supplement them with alternative forages outside at grass, like you know, whether it's silage or straw, they're, they're less likely to eat it compared to, to lush green grass. I think there's potential there for a bit of kind of on-off grazing type of thing to start with. Obviously, where possible, but if there is scope to get them out for a few hours and back in, you can also transition them that way. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. The one we we haven't spoken about is is parasites. So or, or other parasites, a lungworm and fluke. Um, we hear quite often about um, you know in milk and in, in milk cows having a Lung, particularly lungworm, lungworm issues. Is there anything, Colin, we can do to kind of mitigate that, manage it a bit better and, and try and avoid these breakdowns later on in life? Absolutely, yeah. And um, where we tend to see the lungworm clinically is in the autumn. Uh, so we, 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 you can see it 
you know, in the spring as well, uh, but it's more likely to be seen in the autumn. But it's thinking now about our prevention strategies for that. And uh, my way of thinking on this is that if you have a, a dairy cow that's going to be a breeding female that's going to graze uh, as part of her strategy through her life, then we need to maximize her immunity to lungworm. Um, and, and for my money, that's by vaccination in that it's it's simple and it's effective and it needs to be thought about pre-turnout uh, to, to get lungworm vaccine into them. And then they can build up a good immunity and then that immunity is topped up throughout their grazing life as they meet the parasite at grass, but they meet the parasite in such a way and they have sufficient immunity that they can cope with it and they don't get clinical disease. And yeah, I, I wouldn't have grazing dairy cows without having them longworm vaccinated because I think that the challenges are there potentially if they're not. So that's one to think about now and, and, and yeah, very much go down the vaccination strategy rather than, you know, relying on anthelmintics wormers to, to deal with that one. And that's um, just a one-off vaccine, isn't it? That's just a, a young stock vaccine. It's a young stock vaccine. So the, there's two doses that need to be given. And, and the ideal is, is to make sure that they've got those before they're turned out. Uh, and then that really should protect them for life because you're then relying on you know, the drip feeding of parasite exposure throughout their lives um, just to keep their immunity topped up. But yeah, it, it's not something that is needed to be done on an annual basis. So you're really investing in that that heifer, that future dairy cow uh, in in the early stages of life to get the immunity in there and, and really take lungworm off your list of problems, to be honest. It's, yeah. it's pretty simple. And as Lorna mentioned about the, you know, trying to calve it between 22 and 24 months, if you can do something that enhances growth rate even a wee tiny bit just at grass, um, you know, there's, there's an advantage there and then obviously a, a lifetime advantage down the line too. Absolutely. And, you know, there are a lot of dairy farmers that, because they're, they're really trying to push these growth rate targets and, and get them calving at two years old, are, are, are keeping them inside for longer just because it's easier to manage in some ways their, um, their their feeding strategies and also their growth rates that way. So if we're going to turn them out to grass is, is yes, to keep them growing and any parasite check, whether it's a lungworm or whether it's um, a, a gastrointestinal worm is, is going to have an effect on growth rates. So we've got to keep that well managed, but also we've got to think about building in strategies where, where these animals develop some resistance and we're not relying entirely on anthelmintics to to do that so we don't want to be using wormers in a blanket way we want to make sure that we're using them in a targeted way uh, to to reduce clinical disease to maximize growth rates but also to to make sure that we've got some immunity in these animals going forward if they're going to graze yep cool the and other one i was going to say the other one on the fluke side of things is um again probably a good bit of advice just now is just to make sure that any uh, young stock or cattle that have grazed last year don't have a residual fluke burden in them uh, just now. So uh, with any fluke decision and indeed any parasite control decision, it's, it's an individual farm discussion depending on their grazing history, depending on their previous treatment strategies and, and also depending on what they're planning to do for grazing going forward. Um, so it's very much a farm specific decision, but uh, as part of that monitoring and managing would be just to double check that cattle that have been housed are not still carrying a, a sort of hangover fluke burden from last autumn uh, to make sure that any housing worming strategy and housing flukicide strategy that was in place um, is has worked and we've not got any residual fluke burden before they're turned out and, and now would be would be the time to do that. It's just you know looking back on the the previous season uh, and, and thinking right, we'll make sure we're not carrying forward any any parasite burdens into the next grazing season. And then depending on what the results of that are, that check that assessment is is decide what to do, whether treatment's necessary or treatment's not. And that's a two pronged attack as well. It it's good for the animal to get rid of that burden, but also goes some way to break that cycle as well. Absolutely. You're thinking about the individual animal's health, but you're also thinking about trying to potentially reduce pasture contamination as we move into the grazing season. One other particular worm 
issue that we do see from time to time, and, and now will be the time of year that we see it, um, is osteogiasis, and what we call type two osteogiasis. So just to, to explain that one a little bit more, um, that is the, the stomach worm in cattle. So it affects um, uh, the, the abomasum, the fourth stomach, and the worms can cause primary disease during the grazing season and give you scours and poor growth rates in grazing cattle. But also what can happen over the winter is, is, is that if there is a sort of hangover worm burden in the autumn, these worms can basically go into a, a suspended animation. They basically rest up in the abomasum over the winter and then they come back to life again around about this time of year in the spring. Uh, so that can give you a, a, a potentially a, a scour or a growth rate check in these animals with what we call type 2 osteogiasis. So we don't see that commonly, but it's certainly something that's worthwhile bearing in mind if you're suddenly seeing issues with um, ill-thriven or scouring uh, dairy young stock in particular. Uh, what was their worming strategy in the autumn? Has it been effective? And, and could this, this secondary type 2 osteogiasis be an issue? Lorna, we've, we've spoken about um, anthelmintics and, and touched on resistance. The thing we haven't mentioned is uh, antimicrobials, antibiotics. I know you've done quite a bit of work in the past on uh, selective dry cow therapy. I know there's more pressure from milk buyers to, to move towards selective dry cow therapy. And some get on very well with it, others struggle a bit. Have you any advice for people who are looking to start with selective dry cow therapy? Um, yeah, I think there's been a lot of evidence now with um, a lot of farmers now doing selective dry cow therapy for a number of years and they are getting on very well with it. So um, in, in the, the work that I looked at with um, a number of dairy farmers up in Aberdeenshire and Ayrshire, we found that there were some herds that were doing quite high levels of selective dry cow therapy, so using very little antibiotics. And some herds were up to about 75% of cows being dried off without antibiotics uh, and relatively high yielding as well. And there was no more risk of them calving in with a high cell count or having mastitis in that first month of lactation compared to um, those that were using antibiotics. But again, just thinking about um, turnout or dry cows at grass, I do think, you know, if you are starting to, to look at selective dry cow therapy, I think I would just be a bit wary maybe about that in the summertime. So, I mean, if summer mastitis is an issue in your herd, it's probably not a good time to maybe start looking at reducing your antibiotic usage um, in, in that way. But, um, yeah, as, as, as a general rule, um, if you're looking for what cows would be suitable for selective dry cow therapy, the sort of the standard industry recommendation is for cows that have had a cell count below 200 for the last three recordings uh, and no mastitis during that time. But it will very much depend on um, sort of the, the bulk tank cell count levels in the herd, um, the, the, the rates of mastitis, the type of mastitis bugs present on the farm. And so it's something I would just say, always just take advice uh, from your vet on that. But yeah, I'm a, I'm a big advocate of selective dry cow therapy. There's, it's definitely um, a practice that gives great scope to reduce antibiotic usage. And there's a lot of herds doing it very well and keeping their cell counts low and not having that increased risk of mastitis after calving. And, and if you look at the direction of travel we're on, there's no doubt antimicrobials are going to have more um, regulations, more restrictions put on them down the line. And, and the, the quicker we can get to, or the, the quicker we can make reductions in that area, the better it's going to be for your business. Absolutely. I think as well, the thing just to highlight as well is um, if you are starting to, to look at going down the route of selective dry cow therapy, I would say it's really important just to go through with your vet um, hygiene practices around drying off because I think that's one of the most crucial things is just making sure the teats are so clean and so well disinfected. Um, you know, the hyg hygiene around the procedure is, is really key to its success. So making sure that you're going through the, the correct steps in terms of uh, cleanliness, hygiene, but also the order in which you're cleaning the teats and tubing them as well with um, your teat sealant is really important to minimise any risk of infection at that time. Uh, so 
we've discussed the transition of the dry cow into the herd. Obviously, a very important period. But we also have that other transition of moving the housed herd to a grazing herd. So in, in the spring, turn out to grass. What should we we be aware of, or what issues should we we be expecting a, as we transition from a house diet onto a, a, a grazing diet? Yeah, I think again, it's something that's just really important to consider how you move your herd from its housed winter ration onto fresh grass. Um, again, the rumen bugs do take a while to adjust to any changes, and you know winter rations are very well balanced, you know, for fibre, for sugars, for starches, etc. Uh, and, and typically over the years, we've aimed for uh, sort of lower protein diets, around about 16, 17% crude protein on a dry matter basis, um, which, um, you know, to try and improve efficiency, but not overfeed protein, which can be expensive as well. And, and obviously there's environmental impacts with that. But then we turn cows out to fresh spring grass and you know that could easily be as high as 25% crude protein so there's a massive difference in the winter ration compared to to fresh grass and the other issues with fresh spring grass is that it's uh, significantly higher in sugars and it's also very low in fiber so that creates um you know great conditions for you know rapidly fermentation within the rumen um you know higher passage rates as well through the gut so what we can tend to see if we've got a poor transition onto grass um, is just signs of SARA or subacute ruminal acidosis so cows that are very loose in the dung um, and you might see undigested fibre particles uh, within the dung as well. Um, another sign of a poor transition um, is obviously going to be a, a drop in milk yield but also it can greatly affect butterfat as well just down to the the low fiber content of the grass but also fresh spring grass is also quite high in oil as well uh, and again that can have a negative impact on butterfat so if your butterfat drops by about 0.3 percent within a week then we know we've got a problem with poor rumen function you know and if you're on a manufacturing contract that could easily mean a drop in milk price of about uh, a penny so it's it's certainly worth uh, taking the steps to make the transition to grass as smooth as possible so um you know trying to just maybe graze cows for a few hours during the day at first uh, with just like an on-off grazing strategy and you know if you're trying to monitor your your grass intakes um, you know, cows will manage to eat about five kilos of dry matter of grass in the space of about three hours. But I think the key thing is not to overestimate what the potential intake is from grass. And that can vary greatly depending on whether it's a wet day or a dry day. Um, maybe keeping cows uh, housed at night for the first uh, couple of weeks before putting them out day and night, uh, again, just helps ease that transition uh, and also providing buffer feed depending on the level of uh, milk production in the herd as well. Um, you know, high yielders at grass, um, they, they do take careful management, again, just to make sure that we're not overestimating how much dry matter they're getting from the grass. So can you keep your high yielders inside and graze your mid to low um, lactation cows? So again, that's something that might just help maintain the butterfats a wee bit better as well, but will also um, help uh, potentially keep the condition on the high yielders as well if, if it's if it is going to be a wet spring. Um, buffer feeding, yeah, very important. Um, again, just to try and help maintain rumen health and butterfat levels. Um, feeds like whole crop uh, and maize silage actually will be uh, much more complementary to high protein grass uh, as opposed to grass silage. Um, and potentially a bit more fibrous as well. So that can just help slow the passage rate through the gut, lead to more stable sort of rumen conditions and better fibre digestion as well. We know there's a lot of um, highly degradable uh, protein in uh, spring grass and to some extent we do need uh, to provide good sources of rumen available uh, energy from, from cereals, but at the same time we don't want to overdo uh, the amount of starch content in the diet from cereals. So maybe replacing some of the cereal with some high digestible fibre sources such as sugar beet pulp or soya hulls 
can again just help women function and just help maintain butter fat levels as well so in terms of nutrition there, there, there's a lot of things that we can do and again it's, it's good to take uh, advice on that and make sure your your buffer ration is sort of well suited to uh, the amount of grass that the cows are getting I think, yeah, I think it's okay. similar to with a vet you know vets don't just want to talk about ill ill beasts they want to deal with the whole herd and and talk about the well ones and keeping them well and productive and the same goes with nutritionists when it comes to a uh, your nutritionist does want to do rations and discuss things when cows go to grass it doesn't all stop when the um you know when the, the, the main winter rations over with yeah. sorry i was just going to mention as well um you know and in, in, in terms of like you know parlor cake uh, and, and, and other supplements as well so you know there are high fiber high digestible cakes available for feeding at grass lower protein content as well so maybe looking at switching from an 18 uh, percent protein cake to a 16 or even a 14 percent if the uh, if grass is going to be the majority of the ration uh, uh, and other things like yeast or rumen buffers again are well proven to help um, you know, maintain rumen pH and also just help maintain butter fat levels as well. Um, certainly, I think yeast do a really good job. A lot of uh, good research on these products to show that they can help increase milk yield by on average about a litre, but they also do a good job in, um, you know, just preventing drops in rumen pH, but they'll also help improve fibre digestion and it's fibre digestion that is going to go towards helping your butter fat levels. And Colin, what about fertility at this time of year? Is there a risk of turning cattle out and it all going to pot from a fertility perspective? If we can manage the transition, then that shouldn't be the case. Um, so, again, it, it comes down to a lot of what, what Lorna said, is it's just trying to manage any change in ration and change in circumstance for the cow as gradually as possible. They don't like sudden changes. Um, so... Fertility can theoretically take a dip post turnout. Um, now, whether that is a reflection of just a sudden change in management, whether that is a reflection of a sudden change in diet, there are some you know particular thinkings around um, high protein grass, uh, high milk and blood urea levels, and the effect that that could have on fertility. But um, there's two different camps around that in terms of some people think that is an issue with the effect of fertility. Some people think less so. Um, and again, for me, it's all about just trying to manage that change uh, as gradually as possible and try and you know iron out any of the, the, the sudden effects that might be there on the cow. So uh, it, it's really just a question of, of, of just trying to keep things going as, as gradually as possible for the cow. They just don't like sudden changes. Yeah, from a, picking up on some of the stuff that, that Lorna said from a, a vet point of view, magnesium, always just worthwhile making sure that they're adequately and extra supplemented post-turnout. Um, acidosis can can lead to digestive upsets, as we've already talked about, post-turnout, and that can be an issue. And it is quite interesting, I think, that sometimes we tend to view acidosis as a, a housed cow issue um, on a, um, a, you know, a high-performing total mix ration. Um, but actually, you know, some of these circumstances on a dry spring day where we've got relatively high dry matter, grazed grass, low fiber, high sugar, um, that can actually be quite an acidosis inducing feed for a cow. So we have had some in situations where rumen acidosis can be quite a significant issue in uh, grazed animals, particularly if it is in a period of, of nice dry weather with good grass growth, high sugars. So worth bearing in mind. Yeah, excellent. Um, is there anything else we want to add in? I think that does a heap of stuff in there. Just one thing to pick up on, and uh, just an extra one just to chuck in very quickly. So um, mm -hmm. this relates back to health planning, and it relates to considering uh, the autumn and winter that's just passed, and particularly the pneumonia issues that have just passed. And uh, you know, one, of the, one of the questions really has been for young stock pneumonia, has it been an issue? Uh, have you had to treat large numbers of calves? Uh, what was the main causes of that pneumonia? And going forward, what would you want to do differently uh, through next autumn and next winter? And a lot of the factors that relate to that will be 
will be management, it will be housing, it will be nutrition, it will be ventilation, it will be heat conservation, et cetera, et cetera. So there's an awful lot of environmental management feeding factors involved with that. But of course, there is bugs involved, there is viruses, there is bacteria involved in that. And um, if you want to get a feel for what's been going on in a calf crop, uh, a, a great thing to do is, is you know, at this time of year is with your vet is look back at a group of calves where you've perhaps had pneumonia issues in the autumn or, or winter. Um, and they've probably recovered from that now, hopefully. Uh, but if we're unsure what the cause of that was and we're wanting to tweak vaccination programs or start vaccination programs, uh, consider what these animals were exposed to. Getting some blood samples off these heifers now, um, before they're turned out to grass and, and harder to get hold of, uh, and just looking at antibody levels for the different respiratory pathogens to see what they've been exposed to over the winter is really, really useful from a health planning point of view. So it's quite a neat technique if we're doing reviews of you know the successes and failures of the, the, the winter just gone, and there's been more pneumonia than you would have liked if your antibiotic treatment rates have been higher, if your calf losses have been higher, is, is just checking some blood samples from some of the calves that have had pneumonia now at this stage, just to see what it was that was passing through, what they've been exposed to, and then that can help plan for the future. Yeah, and obviously part of the plan, that the other part would be a, you know, still making changes to, the, to your setup, making improvements to your calf house and anything we can do to dry out that calf house and, and get more air in there is going to be a, a positive as well, isn't it? Absolutely. And and we're kind of at that time of year just now. We're at, we're at a, a transition time of year. We're, we're coming out of winter and, and hopefully moving on to, to better times ahead. So looking back at the winter just gone, what's worked well and what's hasn't, it's always a good time from a health planning point of view with a vet is to think, right, well, what worked well this winter? What, what are we going to keep in terms of our health planning protocols? Uh, what are we going to change? What, what didn't work so well? What do we need to investigate further uh, and then potentially change? And that, that just feeds into the general health planning review process in that, you know, it, it's constantly changing. It's constantly evolving. And, you know, at, at this time of year, we're all busy, but it's a great time of year just to take stock of, of the winter that's coming to an end and, and what's, what's worked well, what's worked not so well. Yeah, and not wanting to put words in your mouth here, Colin, but see, for the bit before that, to get into that, could you say something about what the pneumonia incidence has been across the country? You know, there's been more pneumonia or is there, has there been a whole load of pneumonia across the country? Yeah, so calf pneumonia in, in dairy calves is, is always a challenge. Um, this winter has provided, you know, the usual challenge that one would expect with pneumonia. So uh, there's been there's been plenty of calf pneumonia about. Uh, we, through the vet lab, have seen particular problems through January and February with young dairy calves, just because the weather was so cold uh, and they were probably, you know, stressed and potentially losing condition uh, as a result of cold stress at that time as well. So any extra stressor on a calf is going to lead to, to more in the way of problems. So it, it very much leads into thinking not just about, well, what are the bugs and pathogens involved with this, but what are the environmental risk factors and how do we manage them as best that we can? Excellent. That's been great. Uh, Colin and Lorna, I'm sure we could talk about dairy cows all day and probably all of tomorrow as well um, but that's hopefully been a really useful um, insight into where we're at and where we're where we're going in the next few months uh, I've certainly thoroughly enjoyed it and I hope our listeners have too so thank you very much thank you thank you